back to Chasing Dramas. This is it. We are finally here at the drama finale of the story of Minglan or Chufo. Chufo. Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. If you are listening to us for the first time ever and joining us on this episode, which I don't really know why you would, I mean, Go ahead, enjoy the spoilers, but definitely recommend starting from the very beginning with our intro to the drama episode or just starting from episode one. For today, we will talk about what happened in this final episode and dissect its twists and turns that come to a satisfying conclusion. We will also provide some historical context as to the real life counterpart of the events. Uh, that happen, and finally round out the fates of our favorite or not so favorite characters by supplementing what happened in the book, since the drama is not as explicit. So thank you, Kathy, for doing all of that research. Are you ready? I'm super excited, but also rather bittersweet about the fact that we are coming to a close on our journey. We will have a final、uh, last thoughts episode next week, where we kind of round out all of our last impressions of the show. And please let us know if there is anything specific you want us to talk about. But we are just going to ramble on on things that we think are important to、uh, share about our thoughts of the story of Minglan. Let's get started. Last week, within the span of a single episode, we saw our main male character Gu Tingye sent off to war. Then told from various sources that he perished in battle. Before we even blink at the tragedy, a bloody coup breaks out in the capital since all the capable generals have left the city unprotected. The two key points of the battle are one, the Imperial Palace, and two, Minglan's Cheng Gardens. Both places, as well as the rest of the capital, are under a heavy attack by order of the Empress Dowager and her allies. Minglan is currently protecting her property and her children from the onslaught of soldiers, while Prince Huan is protecting his parents in the Imperial Palace. However, at the very end of the last episode, we see Gu Tingye, and he is well and alive. In fact, he's waiting outside the capital with his friend, the state uncle Shen Guojiu, with a number of troops. After a flare signal, they rush into the capital to fend off the rebelling soldiers. That is where we start episode seventy-three, the last episode of this drama. At the Cheng Gardens, the fight is extremely fierce. Minglan's men are doing their best to fight off the rebel soldiers. But the problem is that Minglan's men are largely servants or private security, whereas in the opposing group, there seems to be trained soldiers, and there's a large number of them. No matter how well prepared Minglan's side is, it's still going to be a tough fight. There's fires and screams everywhere as the front gates is surrendered to the onslaught. Minglan grabs a dagger herself to try to protect herself, but with no training, there's not much she can do. Just as a rebel soldier was about to strike Minglan down, a timely arrow to the back stops him in his tracks. Gu Tingye and his men have arrived. Minglan is mightily relieved and cries into his arms when Gu Tingye approaches. She is not surprised at all that he's alive, but rather yells at him for being so late. Honestly, I would be very upset too. She almost did die. It was super close. 
He tries to comfort her as his men come in and swiftly subdue the rebel soldiers. He's all in a joking manner when she's royally pissed off at him, but he says he can't stay. He must rush to save the emperor. And so, he rushes into the palace. Pause. He's also like, oh my god, this is you being mad at me. How great. I'm like, bro, you're in the middle of the fight. Time and place for everything, sir. (laughs) The tides turn quickly as the state uncle, Shen Guozhou, engage in fierce battle against the Empress Dowager's men, or more accurately, concubine Liu's brother's men. When support arrives in the form of Gu Tingye, the battle is decided. Concubine Liu, her brother, and also one of the emperor's close eunuchs are tied and gagged, while the emperor and the empress walk out of their palace unfazed. Concubine Liu screams that it was the empress dowager who told her to revolt with her brother, but the emperor responds calmly that they should go and ask the empress dowager herself if she really said those things. So we turn to the Empress Dowager. She's in her room with her head eunuch. She knows she lost and requests for her eunuch to provide her with poison. It's what you're supposed to do when you lose these types of bloody coups. You kill yourself first. He is reluctant to do so and before they say much else are visited by the Empress and the Emperor. In front of the pair, the Empress Dowager lets out her frustration at the new Emperor. Well, not so new. Within a year of ascending the throne, he has engaged in war and wanted to call his father as well as the deceased emperor as the royal father. Both acts are disrespectful to the late emperor, with whom the empress dowager was married to for decades. But while she was full of hatred for the new emperor, she does say she never said she wanted to depose him. That does come as a shock to the bound and gagged concubine Liu, who shrieks outside as she is dragged away after hearing these words. And now, much to the Empress Dowager's surprise, the Emperor reveals that everything they've done in the recent past was a counter against the Empress Dowager's schemes. The Emperor and Empress knew from the very beginning that his eunuch, Li Neiguan, was telling everything to the Empress Dowager. So they leveraged that knowledge to pass along everything they wanted her to hear. This goes back all the way to, say, 30 episodes prior when the Empress Dowager refused to give up the Imperial Seal to the Emperor so he could actually govern. Every outlandish and disrespectful thing Gu Tingye said and the Emperor's own dislike for Gu Tingye was all an act to make the Empress Dowager believe that there were chasms in their relationship. Additional lies include the Emperor's own headaches and anger at his officials. The Emperor's health is perfectly fine and he's not actually angry at any of his allies. He just acted that way so the eunuch would pass along this information to the Empress Dowager and also Concubine Liu so they would act quickly. Especially the part about his headaches because they wanted to uh, make the Empress Dowager and Concubine Liu believe that the Emperor was going to die soon. Furthermore, and probably the biggest lie, or it was a lie of a grander scale, is that there is actually no trouble or war at the border. This was only an excuse to pretend to need to bring the likes of Gu Tingye and other capable soldiers and generals out of the capital and in order to leave it empty. 
Guotie and Shen Guojiu remained hidden just outside the capital, ready to strike, while the Duke of Ying actually did head to the border to complete the ruse. After news traveled back to the Empress Dowager, her men were actually captured, so they were working off false information. That is why this revolt was so easily quashed, because the Emperor actually knew that the Empress Dowager was planning something like this and had a fallback plan. The Empress Dowager is stunned, but also impressed at just how well the Emperor played the game. From the very beginning, she walked into his trap while thinking she was winning, when in reality, she just got caught deeper in the bog. She willingly accepts death as punishment, but to her surprise is told that she is only being requested to move out of the palace to spend the rest of her days elsewhere. To this, she readily agrees. And I'm like, okay, um, this is what happens when you're super wealthy and powerful. The people who are underneath you, uh, like the lowly citizens, we are just used as pawns and kills for, you know, without anyone ever thinking about this. Like the Empress Dowager enacted a coup. I don't know if it's appropriate for her to just go off and retire somewhere. Like she should repent for what she's done, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Let's now chat about everything that just happened before we move on to the rest of the episode as it moves back to Minglan and Gu Tingye's story. The conflict between the emperor and the empress dowager is quite simple to understand. It's the growing pains of a new regime. The empress dowager wants to preserve the old order established under her husband, while the new emperor wants to govern via his own methods. The drama takes some reference to history, as the previous emperor, Song Renzong, was revered for his kindness. His pacifist ruling style is what I'm assuming the Empress Dowager and the captured eunuch were referring to about the late emperor's regime versus the new one. The Empress Dowager thought she had everything under control and could read the dynamics of court very easily because she thought that she had spies in the emperor's palace. But in reality, all of that was planted by the emperor. This drama definitely requires multiple viewings to catch the swift glances between the characters to showcase that there was something spoken on purpose. There were many instances where the emperor was supposedly angry at Gu Tingye or other officials, and the empress would note how the emperor's headache flared up, only for the emperor to say, oh, oh yeah, my headache. That was all for the eunuch's benefit to then pass along to the Empress Dowager. In those scenes, you will see the camera cut to this eunuch, even though he's just standing silently on the side. Similarly, Gu Tingye was in on many of his punishments because the results had too many glaring holes. He was sent to jail after the Wang family, Madame Qin, Bai Dalang, and Man Yang came to court except his sentence was rather hasty. Furthermore, as I noted in episode 70, his jail cell was way too comfortable for someone who was in prison for a murder crime. I'm assuming that the palace didn't actually want him to suffer too badly. And similarly, while he was in prison, Gu Hinye didn't care about his current predicament, but rather that his wife caused a scene at the Empress's palace. 
If any regular person was in prison for murder, I doubt they would have the energy to spare to think about that. But only because he was in on the whole scheme, he didn't really care what situation he was in. If you go back and listen to the previous podcast episodes, there are multiple instances where Karen and I say, pay attention to this, pay attention to this uh, dialogue. This was just more of a hint to say, yes, something is amiss here or something is going on that has all led up to this specific episode. All of the schemes culminated in the last episode where the men were sent off to war. What was rather peculiar about the last episode was that the emperor explicitly told Prince Huan to remain in the palace rather than accompany the state uncle Shen Guojiu and Gu Tingye to the border. That, to me, was also carefully planned because the emperor wanted to have at least some level of protection in the palace. Indeed, during the coup, as you saw in the last episode, Prince Huan had the capability of rallying troops and defending his parents' palace from immediate threat. Additionally, the emperor held back Prince Huan in a very peculiar, like using a very peculiar excuse of your mom wants you to stay because the emperor has sent Prince Huan off on rather long journeys before uh, for work. So the fact that the emperor kept Prince Huan close at home when there is war on the border was rather telling. Now, something confusing for me was ultimately the relationship between uh, Concubine Liu and the Empress Dowager. Concubine Liu believed that the Empress Dowager wanted to depose the current emperor and in exchange for her and her brother's help in doing so, would name her son Emperor. The Empress Dowager denies this in front of the Emperor. For me, this shows that the Empress Dowager still is a master tactician. She never left any physical evidence of her inclinations and left people to act on what they thought was her will. The Empress Dowager just never made any comment otherwise if uh, that was indeed what she wanted. This was the case with Concubine Liu because Concubine Liu in the last episode and this episode could not produce any physical evidence of the Empress Dowager uh, inciting this coup. As well as Madame Tin and the Wang family, if you recall, um, the Empress Dowager had that whole, I guess, scene with a candle of snipping the candle wick and everything. Nothing was explicitly said, but the Wang family understood what that meant. That to me showcases again that the Empress Dowager is quite the tactician and understands how to play the game in the palace. Speaking of these people, let's turn back to Madame Tin. The shouts and screams have calmed down in the capital, but she and her maid, Xiang Mama, thinks it's because the Empress Dowager has succeeded. Only for her son, Gu Tingwei, to run over exclaiming happily that his brother has returned. He's alive! Madame Qin's jaw drops, and she gasps for a few moments before figuring out that there was never any conflict on the border, and that this whole thing was a ruse. She was one smart cookie for figuring that out so quickly. At this moment, she completely snaps. She screams in despair that she plotted her entire life for her son, but he's nowhere near as capable as Gu Tingye. She hates the fact that she, who comes from a noble family, raised a son that cannot do anything. 
This is a woman whose entire life just shattered before her eyes. She finally understands that everything that has happened between the Empress Dowager and Gu Tingye was fake. She lost. Madame Qin screams at her servants to tie her son up and throw him into a dried well. They do as she screams and he's tossed in. Meanwhile, she stumbles her way over to the Gu family shrine. In some of the best acting in the drama, Madame Qin, Qin Da Niangzi, tosses everything in the shrine and starts a fire. Gu Tingye is summoned by Xiang Mama to save Ting Wei, and the group plus Minglan rush over to the shrine to see Madame Qin amidst the roaring flames. She screams at Ting Wei for getting out of the well and also at Gu Tingye for being alive. After all the times he told her to join an acting troupe, he is the one who should be in that troupe. And then, at last, she screams out her pain she suffered her entire life. Her sister, a kind-hearted person, was pushed aside for the Bai family by the Gu family in order to preserve themselves. The Gu family destroyed her sister, the Bai family, and herself. Madame Qin acted her entire life in this household. At the end, she wants to finally live as herself. With those final words, she dives headfirst, I'm assuming to ram her head before the flames consume her. And with that, the formidable Madame Qin passes away. We'll take a second to lament this character who was such a great character in the drama. We'll talk about her a lot more in uh, the next or final episode. Well, all's well that ends well, and the key characters get a satisfying resolution after all of the craziness that has happened. We get a scene where the Wang family head, so the son of Grandma Wang and brother to the deceased Aunt Kong and the exiled, so to speak, Madame Wang, has been sentenced and is dragged off as a prisoner. We are assuming he has been sentenced for his crimes in conjunction with the coup, amongst other things. It's not fully clear, but we'll take it as the Wang family paid for their crimes and the, that the emperor knew that the Wang family was scheming against Gu Tingye. After this brutal conflict, court affairs have also calmed down. The emperor's wheat harvest is bountiful and he shares his hard-grown crops with Gu Tingye and Minglan, as well as the empress dowager, who is enjoying her days in retirement outside the palace, raising concubine Liu's son, Yong'er. It is assumed that his mother, concubine Liu, is either in prison or killed. As for Qi Hong, after everything that's happened, he has seen what he should truly appreciate in front of him. On a lovely evening walk with his wife, Madame Shen, he tells her that she is his future and they are going to spend the rest of their days together. So Qi Hong no longer pines for Ming Lan and is going to enjoy blissful marriage with his wife, Madame Shen. In the drama's closing scene, there is a family gathering at the Gu family shrine. The Sheng family have arrived to help the Gu family restore the shrine that was destroyed, and the harmonious scene couldn't be more infectious. 
While creating new plaques and banners for the shrine, Minglan explains to her father that the empress told her what they were planning after she passed out outside the palace walls in episode 71. This is why Minglan loudly proclaimed that all was lost and acted out in a crazy manner after leaving the palace. She needed to be seen and heard by the entire capital. And in order for them to believe that she had lost faith uh, in the emperor and the empress, so that the people working for the Empress Dowager would believe that there was no chance of forgiveness for Gu Tingye. The look on her father Sheng Hong's face when she tells him about this is hilarious. He cannot believe that the scheme took place and was at such a large scale. But he continues that after all of this, everyone's better days are ahead of them. Uh, I want to just chime in. When Sheng Hong's like, oh my god, so when you were saying like, and we spent a lot of time talking about that uh, in the previous episodes, um, Milan was like, ooh, don't say this, because that was purposeful. Uh, Sheng Hong was like, oh no, I can't say th- these words anymore. That was super funny. And indeed, through everyone's hard work, Minglan and Gu Tingye are able to look forward to happy and peaceful days ahead. In this wonderful closing scene, let me recount who all is around to share in this peaceful and jovial gathering. On the Sheng family side, we have Minglan's siblings, Hua Lan, her husband, Chang Bai, Chang Feng, all around to restore the shrine. Rulan is making tea with her husband outside. On the Gu family side, Gu Tingye's older brother's widow plays with one of the children, with Changbai's wife, Madame Hai. Her daughter, Xianjie, and Gu Tingye's daughter, Rongjie, are playing amicably nearby as well. Gu Tingye's younger brother, Ting Wei, is also in the shrine helping the Sheng family relatives out. The biggest surprise is actually seeing Mulan arrive. Last we saw was her getting put in her place in front of her husband after being exposed of the trickery she used to marry him. But this time, there's a really big change in her. It's just a few quick scenes where she arrives to see Grandma Sheng, who is thankfully healthy and alive, but it is evident that Mulan is a changed woman. Notice how she arrives alone. Previously, her husband would join. This probably means that uh, her married life isn't going too well. She's also much more respectful and deferential in front of Minglan and Grandma Sheng. Her clothing choice has also changed. In the past, she has generally worn bright hues, also pink, but today she chose to wear black and white, or mo se, which means ink-colored clothing. This matches with her name very well, but also reflects that she has calmed down from her attention-seeking days. We can only guess how much she has suffered at home, but hopefully this means she has learned the error of her ways and will now be a loving member of her own family. The only person missing is Madame Wang, who is still in Youyang, uh, praying away her sentence, I guess. To round out the happy endings, Shi Tou helps his pregnant wife Xiao Tao up as they prepare to head off to eat. With the doting family all gathered around, Minglan and Gu Tingye express how glad they are to enjoy these peaceful days together. With that, the husband and wife pair head off to eat.
The end. <laughs> tear, tear, cry, cry. I'm so sad that this drama's over and was so touched by such a sweet ending scene where we got to see so many of our favorite characters together as a family, even for a brief moment. It's, ugh. It makes you feel like you're a part of their family. And we will talk more about them at the end of this podcast episode as part of the epilogue where Kathy explains uh, the true fate for each person. But before we get to that, let us round out some of the history from this episode and this drama. The lines Mai Qiu Zheng Ji Yu Yang He Feng Sui Zi Shao Xiong Duo Sui Tian Jia Xin Ku Ke Nai He these lines were spoken by the emperor in front of his wheat field after all of the conflicts resolved itself and his crops actually bore fruit. These lines actually come from the poem called Da Mai or Threshing Wheat written by the Northern Song Dynasty poet Zhang Shunmin. The full poem has 14 stanzas and describes the difficulties of farmers uh, when they harvest the wheat and the challenges it takes to bring this wheat to the table. The specific lines in the poem can be translated as such. When the crop ripens, the farmer quickly harvests the wheat, but they also need to plant the seeds for the next year's crops. Bountiful years are few and far between, yet meager years are common. The farmer must toil endlessly, but what can he do? The last two stanzas of the poem go like this. Which means, take this threshing poem as your planting song. Now, let's say the year is around the mid-1060s. It is true that the author Zhang Shunmin succeeded in his imperial exams and became a jin shi in 1065 during the reign of Song Yingzong. However, it is unknown when he wrote this poem specifically, so it could be an anachronism. Doesn't matter. I think the key point or message of this scene is to showcase that the emperor does truly care about his citizens and bringing food and bountiful harvest to the people that he rules. That is a very powerful and strong message and is to showcase that he is a kind-hearted and thoughtful ruler. Okay, now on to the history of our real-life characters. First up is, of course, Song Yingzong, the emperor here. There's a decent amount of difference between the historical character and the show. The drama, of course, had to bring everything together from a book perspective, so I'm totally cool with these changes. Song Yingzong, or Zhao Shu, only reigned for around four years, from 1063 to 1067. He died when he was only 35. We talked about him at length before, um, namely about how he was pretty emotionally scarred for being named Crown Prince, but then stripped of that title and then reinstated as Crown Prince. So that did a little, not a little, a lot of kind of damage to him. But um, I won't go into too much detail here. This emperor's main claim to fame during his reign was the big split between naming his birth father his father instead of the emperor. It did cause a lot of ruckus and ruffled a lot of feathers in court. 
please go and listen to our episode surrounding this whole uh, naming, um, because a lot of what happened in the drama was relatively similar to uh, history. Unfortunately for this emperor, Song Yingzong was a sickly man and fell ill several times during his reign. His prime minister supported him, but at times, Empress Dowager Cao also acted as regent when the emperor was ill. Let me take a brief moment then to discuss Empress Dowager Cao. In the drama, this Cao Taiho is portrayed as the villain in the second act. I think villain is too harsh a word because she was preserving what her husband built. So I do understand where her anger and hatred for the new emperor stems from. In the drama, she enacts this coup to try to overthrow the emperor, whereas in history, she actually had a great relationship with the adoptive son of her husband. Because Cao Huanghou or Cao Taihou never had children, she understood her role was to foster and help the new emperor. We do have to commend her for the fact that she stayed in power for so long without children, as we all know how important children are to a woman's status in this time in China. We saw this throughout this drama as well as in Empresses in the Palace. Why is that? Part of it is because Cao Huanghou or Cao Taihou is a woman that perfectly fits the word for xianhui or virtuous. Pretty much any description of her revolves around this word, xian. She supported her husband uh, as empress for 28 years before becoming regent to their adoptive son. As mentioned, Song Yingzong only reigned for a few years, and the Empress Dowager Cao actually helped rule while he was ill. When he passed and the power went on to his son, she continued to help rule. But unlike many other Empress Dowagers and what was portrayed in this show, the true Cao Huanghou or Cao Taihou relinquished power when she was no longer needed to rule. So whenever Song Yingzong became healthy enough to go to court, she would be like, okay, I'm taking a step back. That attitude is rather rare, even in dramas we see today, which is why she fits the word for virtuous quite well. She knows her role and plays it incredibly well, but is not going to overstep. I do feel like she probably lived a very tiresome life, being restricted by so many rules, but uh, her, I guess, reputation uh, ultimately was a good one after her passing and what we see today. She died at the age of 64 in 1079 AD. Something that we will also talk about in the next episode is that from us growing up, the Song Dynasty never actually got as much notice uh, at least when I was watching dramas, mainly because so many shows were around the Qing Dynasty, but also because the focus of the Song Dynasty usually stemmed around its failures to keep invaders at bay. The Song Dynasty was generally looked down upon due to its lack of military prowess and the fact that it was defeated soundly by the Mongols. So in a lot of martial arts dramas I watch, namely uh, Tianlong Babu and a few others, you're just like, oh, the Song Dynasty was not capable enough in fending off the Jurchens or the Mongolians. So what I love about this drama is that it really showcases what a powerhouse the Song Dynasty was during its heyday. It was an economically and culturally advanced society because during this time, the estimated GDP, gross domestic product, was three times as much as the whole of Europe. 
this show gives us that glimpse into that world. We never really had that before this show of the life and beauty of, I guess, just like the common people. I mean, the Schoen family weren't common per se, but I really did feel like we saw a living, breathing environment of the Song Dynasty, where oftentimes these historical dramas tend to be, I guess, very flashy, very flashy and more like cleaned up. Whereas here you you truly feel like, you know, you understand the challenges. Like there's a lot of things that are not fully explained because that's just the way of life. And I so appreciate that about this drama. We'll continue to fawn about this in the next episode. <laughs> Our next podcast. Or episode. next podcast episode. Yeah. Now on to book differences. As I mentioned last week, the drama quickly resolves several plot lines by mashing them together. It works to an extent. Gu Tingye in the book does not return in time to save Minglan. She handles it by herself and figures it out that Gu Tingye wasn't truly in danger. Gu Tingye stays out west to stamp out the book Empress Dowager's strongholds. He returns to tell Minglan about the fate of Manyang, who goes crazy, which I mentioned in the last episode. Gu Tingye and Minglan finally have a heart-to-heart and become a blissfully married couple. Madame Tsien doesn't die in a fire, but later. The book Empress Dowager also doesn't die, but is sent away to live out her years. Now, as we have concluded the drama, I want to spend the rest of our podcast episode here um, talking about the book endings for each person. These are all explained in the epilogue chapters, or I guess you would call them the side stories of the book. I mean that because we focus on different characters rather than Minglan and Gu Tingye, and they're just kind of uh, discussed as an afterthought. Let's start with Minglan and Gu Tingye. The couple essentially lives happily ever after. Gu Tingye offered to be stationed in Shu Di, which is now modern name Sichuan. Of course, Minglan went with him. They essentially stayed there for the remainder of their lives, living a fun and relaxing-ish life. They had four sons. Minglan became a legendary figure amongst the women in the capital and of the younger generation of Sheng family girls. No one could quite figure out how Minglan was so successful. Of course, in the book, she time-traveled from a different place and era, so that might have been it. Now let's talk about their sons. They aren't actually given names in the book, so I'll just go in order. The eldest was stately and proper. He is most similar to his father without the worst of his traits. The second, he was one of the most handsome men in the empire, but alas, followed in his uncle Sheng Chang Bai's footsteps of being taciturn, yet brilliant. Both the eldest and second eldest of the Gu children entered court and became staples of court. The third son decided to head out east and travel the seas. The youngest son, seeing that his brother turned eastward, chose to travel westward. During his travels, he chronicled his experiences and wrote an encyclopedia recounting his travels. When he was around 40, he caught the eye of a foreign princess and married in to the royal family. All right, let's now cover the Sheng family. The men first. We start with 
the master of the family, Sheng Hong. He continues his calculated expansion of power for his family and rises to a member of court of the second rank before retiring, which is quite good for him. He stays married to Madame Wang, but of course, she's banished for 10 years. He has other concubines at the house, but no one is as crazy as Mistress Lin. Next up, we have Sheng Changbai, the awesome older brother. In the book, during the events of the story, he actually spent a decent amount of time outside of the capital uh, where he was posted. He steadily rose through the ranks to become prime minister and was a critical member of court for two emperors. His students were spread all across the empire. He had four sons. Three of them did pretty well, but his youngest was the black sheep of the family. When Changbai died, the emperor ordered his two princes to carry his casket to his final burial place, which is a very, very high honor. Next is Mr. Sheng Changfeng. He finally did pass his imperial entrance exams and became an official at court. He had several children with his wife, Madame Liu, who, uh, let's just say in the book, Basically, everybody approved of the marriage because Madame Liu saved his butt multiple times. It was actually his wife and the Sheng family that finally made Sheng Chang Feng see the light regarding Mistress Lin, and he stopped trying to bring her back into the family. Remember, in the book, she does not die. And lastly, we have Sheng Chang Dong. He only shows up in the book. He does quite well for himself, too, and passes the imperial entrance exams. He married a daughter of the Shen family, who is somewhat related to the state uncle, but is just, you know, quite far out from a relative's perspective. But let's see. All of Sheng Hong's sons pass the imperial entrance exams, which is quite a feat. So, you know, despite everything we say about Sheng Hong, he achieved his goals. Now, on to the ladies. Let's we'll start with Grandma Sheng. In the book, Grandma Sheng doesn't stay in the capital after the events of her poisoning. Instead, she joins Sheng Changbai and his wife while they head away for his posts. She lived a very long and healthy life. In fact, she lived so long that she was still alive when Minglan became a grandmother herself. Minglan constantly fought with Sheng Changbai on taking care of Grandma Sheng, but somehow Minglan always lost that battle. So I'm very glad in the book, Grandma Sheng lived, I mean, at this point, probably until she was 100. So that's great. Now on to Sheng Hualan, the eldest sister. We don't really see the hardships she suffered in her marriage in the drama, but in the book, we do. Let's just say she was one smart cookie and successfully turned it around. Her main obstacle was her pretty evil mother-in-law. Hualan and her husband became a very loving couple after she was able to kind of uh, dispatch this mother-in-law. She, Hualan that is, was still having kids in her 40s. I think that's at least four. We know she had a daughter and two sons in the book. And I don't know how many other kids she had after, but good for her. Hualan's eldest daughter, Zhuangjie, married a very successful general, um, Bo Jiangjun, and had many kids. Now we go on to Mo Lan. Her ending is not quite the same as in the drama. 
Her husband, Liang Han, never finds out about the treachery, so they have a relatively stable relationship. The only problem is Liang Han doesn't really amount to much and just spends his time cavorting around the women in his quarters. Mulan has five daughters. Yes, five daughters. She did have a few miscarriages of sons, though. Mm, but I guess the author just didn't want her to have, like, too successful of a life. So five daughters it is. All of her daughters married low, though. Lastly, we have Rulan. Rulan had a pretty loving relationship with her husband. They're probably not as happy as Minglan and Hualan. She had a son and a daughter. Well, actually, a daughter first and then a son. Minglan was super jealous of Rulan because Minglan wanted at least one daughter, but all she got were sons. Rulan in the book really grew up. She learned from her mother's mistakes and was able to maintain a healthy marriage with her husband. It's not to say that she didn't have to accept concubines, but at least no one was as terrible as Mistress Lin. As for the rest of the Shong family daughters, um, I'm talking about Minglan, Hualan, and Rulan. They very much did support each other in a pretty lovingly um, and sisterly way. Mulan was kind of always an afterthought. Like, they never invited Mulan to anything, but they wouldn't let Mulan really fall on her face. And I guess that's what Mulan gets for being her. Now let's talk about the rest of the Gu family. Gu Tingwei, he did not come out of the story well at all. He was actually one of the main culprits in leading the band of thieves to the Cheng Gardens. Seeing that his men were going to lose, he fled for the forests. Unfortunately for him, Gu Ting, Ye's men, and other captains chased after him, ultimately killing him. For his crimes, his entire side of the family was uh, stripped of titles, and his children all died of the plague. This side of the family pretty much became depleted. Ugh. I like what the drama did to Gu Tingwei, because in the drama, he has a much better relationship with Gu Tingye. I feel like it's a little bit cliche now for the brothers to want to kill each other, so um, how the book ended for Gu Tingwei is... Uh, pretty sad. I'm happier with the drama. Madam Qin, so Qin Da Niangzi, after hearing the death of her son and her grandchildren, fell ill and ultimately died. There was a lot more that happened in the book, which she ruined, you know, another woman and things like that. And this woman came back to seek revenge and was the one who smuggled in the plague-infested clothing and gave to Gu Tingwei's children, killing them. Ugh, that's not fun. As for Xian Jie, the daughter of Gu Tingye's older brother, she later on married the son of the House of Liang, so that would actually be Mulan's nephew by marriage. This son would inherit the title. The Countess of the House of Liang herself asked for this marriage between Xian Jie and the son in the House of Liang. The book doesn't tell us how well the marriage went, but let's just say that the House of Liang had enough happening in the book, so it's fine. Xian Jie was intelligent enough but she might be in for a spell of hardship to deal with that family. For her marriage, her two cousins, so Minglan's two oldest sons, returned to represent her family, which means that they had a very uh, cordial, or at least a pretty loving and close uh, cousin relationship. 
Next up is Zhongtier. Gu Tingye's oldest daughter. This young lady married Chang Momo's grandson. She was very favored by Mingline because obviously Rongjie saved her son. Chang Momo's grandson also had a very good career ahead of him. He passed his imperial entrance exams and became a favored member of court. For Rongjie's marriage, Mingline personally returned from Sichuan to manage everything, really reflecting how close of a relationship they had. Chang Momo's grandson is also only mentioned in the book. You didn't miss anything. <laughs> he doesn't show up in the drama. We won't talk about the rest of the Gu family because there's a lot more that happens in the book, which kind of skews how things end up. So it's not really worth repeating. Those were the fates of the primary Gu family characters. Now on to the Wang family. The Wang family were turned into the evil family in the drama, but it's not quite the case in the book. The main black sheep is still Aunt Kang. Madame Wang serves her 10 years back at the old family home in Youyang. She comes back and helps raise some of Chang Bai's kids afterwards, mainly the one that didn't turn out so well. <laughs> oh, oh well. Um, Aunt Kang in the book wasn't murdered by Gu Tingye, so she is sent into prison for the rest of her life. She has a daughter named Kang Yuer that still tries to get her out. This Kang Yuer is married to the Sheng family and she's basically burning up all her goodwill trying to get her mother out. At this point in the book, even the Sheng family won't help her anymore. At least the Sheng family likes Kang Yuer. Madame Kang's other daughter, Kang Yuer, who is most similar to her mother, to her mother, basically is sidelined by her mother-in-law and lives a rather miserable life for the remainder of her life. And now on to some other characters. He Hongwen, the doctor, the good doctor who Minglan might have married, does marry later in life and has a son and daughter. His wife also had a previous engagement. So although they don't necessarily love each other, this couple lives a rather tranquil life. He Hongwen's annoying cousin is still in the picture, but He Hongwen's wife is more than capable of handling her. Next, we have Xiao Tao, Minglan's maid. As in the drama, she marries Shi Hou and they have several children. The side story is so hilarious because Xiao Tao just does what she is told by her sister-in-law and is like, I'd like to return back to Madame Minglan later in life. Shi Hou overhears this and gets so pissed off because he's like, are you wishing me dead? <laughs> Then we have... I don't, I don't get it. Well, it's... Um, so in the book, Shi Ho isn't really the like the servant of Gu Tingye, but, you know, a, a part of, like, Cao Bang, which is kind of the river pirates. So when Xiao Tao and Shi Ho marry, they actually leave um, the Gu Manor. So Xiao Tao lives a really pretty, like, easy life. She does what she's told, um, helps with the family, but she has a really uh, caring sister-in-law, so the sister-in-law just handles everything. Xiao Tao is like, uh, yeah, I think that I want to go back to Minglan um, later in life and just be like Fang Mama, like who was there for Grandma Sheng. And Shi Ho hears this and is like, do you wish me dead? Basically, the only way that Xiao Tao would go back to Minglan would be if her husband died. So Shi Ho's like, what are you saying? <laughs> I'm going to stay alive just because you said that. 
Okay. Next up, we have Madame Zhang, the wife of state uncle Shen. She surprisingly has six kids with her husband, which is hilarious because in the book, at the very end, she tells Minglan, all I want is to have a small, quiet yard with my one son and enjoy the rest of my life. But that did not happen because she has kids running all over the place. And she's, um, she names her kids uh, basically Da Mao, Ar Mao, Sam Mao, which is like, I don't even know, like... Counting numbers. Counting numbers. And the, the character recounting the story is like, um, the butler son have better names than this. Like, what is happening? Contraception, yo. <laughs> <laughs> As for the despicable mistress, so she was somewhat successful in trying to divide the Shen family, but she was finally thrown away to pray in a temple for years. Until one of state uncle Shen's youngest daughters, um, her name is Shen Yuzhu. She's from his first marriage, decided to bring her back to her family and support her. But this is like decades later. Alrighty, and last but not least, let's talk about Qi Hong, the young duke. The drama really gives him a happily ever after. He is not so lucky in the book. He married three times. The first wife we saw, similar to the book and drama, dies. Madame Shin, however, gives birth to twins. Shortly after, though, she travels with the children to find Qi Hong while he is stationed elsewhere. Unfortunately, all three of them die on the road due to plague. And that's the end of that marriage. Oh, that is horrible. That's such a tragedy. For this, for his third marriage, he married a granddaughter of a princess. However, she also died after giving birth to two sons. She died um, before the age of 30. After that, Qi Hong never married again and raised his sons by himself. One day, decades later, he heads to Sheng Changbai's house after returning from his post away. He sees one of Sheng Changbai's granddaughters. She's also ranked number six, is Shu Chu, or not born from the main madam, and is pretty much unfavored by her father. Her father is the black sheep of Sheng Changbai's sons that I mentioned before. After a few years, Qi Hong actually asks for this granddaughter's hand in marriage for his second grandson. Despite Sheng Changbai's initial hesitation, he finally agrees. The two get married and live a happy and pretty prosperous life. They have several children. On his deathbed, Qi Hong gifts his most treasured possession to this granddaughter. She opens it to see the clay dolls that have yellowed due to age. She finds that the dolls have on it Sheng Xiaoliu and Qi Xiaoar. These are the nicknames that Qi Hong once gave himself and Sheng Minglan. Sheng Minglan rejected Qi Hong and gave those dolls back to him, but he kept those dolls till his dying day. With this new generation of Sheng Xiaoliu, this Sheng family granddaughter, and Qi Xiaoar, this Qi family grandson, they're finally happily ever after. I really like this side chapter for Qi Hong. I guess it's just wish fulfillment for our main story. Sheng Xiaoliu and Qi Xiaoar never made it 
in the story of Minglan, but in a different generation, they were able to. Isn't that so sweet? I'm crying. <laughs> when we started out this podcast journey, there really were only two dramas that we wanted to discuss in this detail. The first one is Empresses in the Palace, and the second one is The Story of Minglan. The Story of Minglan is a drama that is more reflective of everyday life, and many lessons learned and portrayed in this drama are ones that I have taken to heart. It is a drama that I return to often to remind myself how to be more like Minglan or how to handle certain situations uh, because the lessons learned in this drama transcend time. This drama does a wonderful job of showcasing to us what the world was like during the Song Dynasty and what kinds of challenges both men and women faced during that time. In Empresses in the Palace, we were introduced to the concept of children uh, born of the wife and children born of concubines. That poses its challenges in the royal family, but similarly poses problems for lesser families. We will wrap up the podcast episode here, but we will continue our final thoughts in our last podcast episode discussing the story of Minglan. If there is anything specific that you want us to touch upon next week, please do reach out to us at Karen and Kathy at ChasingDramas.com via email or reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at ChasingDramas. Thank you all so much for listening to this extremely long episode. We haven't done an episode this long in quite some time. Some last disclosures. The music you heard today is the Zither piece called Lan with sheet music by Bingjie Wu Niujun and played by yours truly. If you are in the States and are looking for a place to watch Chinese dramas, do check out Jubao TV, that is J-U-B-A-O TV, for Chinese dramas and movies with English subtitles to watch that are all free. If you are in the States and want to watch it online for streaming, you can access it via the website XUMO or Jumo or on TV on Xfinity and Cox Contour. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening and joining us on this journey. We will see you in the next episode where we will give our goodbye to the story of Minglan. Thank you.